It's the 23rd of April, 2016, and this is episode 290. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with another episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks to everyone supporting Tokenly's campaign at bankthefuture.com. Within the first two days, we blew up our target number and are on track to do more than double that number before the end. Stay tuned during the break for a more in-depth update and hiring announcements for three roles we're looking to fill within the team immediately. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Kirk Phillips and Stephanie Murphy, author and narrator of The Ultimate Bitcoin Business Guide. After the interview, we'll listen to Chapter 9 of the just-released audiobook version on Credit Card Chaos, narrated by Stephanie Murphy. Let's join the conversation in progress. It was the beginning of 2014 or the end of 2013. It was right around New Year's, plus or minus a week there. So there was actually an acquaintance who was at my house and... They just said, hey, Kirk, I want to ask you for some advice. I said, sure. They said, hey, do you, do you know about Bitcoin? Uh, my husband and I would like to invest $850 in a computer so we can mine some Bitcoin and make some money. Like, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I'd actually heard, heard the word. It was the, actually the Silk Road article in the Wall Street Journal. I usually grab the Wall Street Journal like when I'm on a plane flight. So it was like in October, just a couple months prior. But that was it. I had heard about it and hadn't done any more work on it. So I said, hey, you know, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. I'll have to look into it and get back to you. And next thing you know, we have a book. <laughs> so that's essentially how it happened. I just ended up going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which seems like an often described phenomenon that Bitcoiners uh, talk about. And that's it's exactly what happened to me. Yeah, I think everyone who's listening can relate to uh, having gone down the rabbit hole at some point. <laughs> Certainly had an experience like that myself. So I would describe your book and I've read it because I've actually made the audiobook of of it, which is going to be available soon. I would describe your book as it's a it's a basically a cliff notes guide to getting your business up and running with Bitcoin. And it's everything you need to know, but without giving a lot of extra extraneous information while still telling you all the important parts. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I would say that's actually an excellent, excellent summary. Hey, and I should do radio or something. Yeah, that was that was excellent. Yeah, and the, and the, and there is some of the uh, some of the business stuff in there, compliance and so forth. But that's a component for sure. Uh, but yeah, I think you described it perfectly. And kind of my vision all along was to have a companion site, which is uh, at least in the beginning stages, to really complement the book and to the in the areas, like you said, giving you just enough. But you would need more information to in in many areas, maybe to complete. So the idea was to be able to go to the site and get more in depth information, like self guided courses and things like that, like information products. I imagine. Um, before you found out about Bitcoin, you were an account. You were working as an accountant. Is that right? I've actually done quite an array of different things. So yes, I've worked in public accounting for big firms, public accounting for small firms, private companies. I started many of my own businesses in different industries, real estate and restaurants, and many, many different things. Many, many, many things that didn't work. One of the businesses being uh, uh, business advising. And uh, you know, outsourced accounting. I'm a, basically I'm a, I'm a huge fan of technology. I love. I'm fascinated by technology and business technology, and having kind of come of age when these things came about. And it really wasn't that long ago that there was still many manual paper processes. It's it's not that long ago. It's only a decade or two. So really, how can you um, really have peace of mind in your business and your life in general by using technology to cut out the stuff? You know, so you don't have any wheel spinning. My fascination around technology is. You know, Bitcoin is just an extension of my fascination with that. And it's 
you know, obviously <laughs> it's much greater and has much more potential than anything I've seen. So that's why I'm so enamored with it and still suck way down in the rabbit hole. Yeah. So kind of the, the other side of the coin haha, of what you just said is that it sounds like before you found out about Bitcoin, you were able to, as both an entrepreneur and as a business advisor and an accountant, you were able to see the problems in the current legacy system and what kind of headaches they create for business owners when they're trying to deal with stuff like bank transfers, credit cards. And you actually start out your book with something that's really interesting, which is a description of like, like basically the failures of the current system. There's a couple chapters called like credit card chaos and money transfer madness and banking burnout bonanza. And <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, so like, I think people are curious yes. about those things. I think people are curious about all aspects of Bitcoin and how, how you run a business while integrating Bitcoin. But why don't we first start out and just tell us the craziest things about the current system? Well, you're right. I am crystal clear about the old legacy models. So I've already had that insight just by having been a CPA and like you said, entrepreneur business advisor over 15 years. So I was crystal clear on that. And I'm a huge fan of Stephen Covey. So I say in there that, you know, or what he says is to understand something is to understand its opposite. So that was the inspiration for highlighting credit card chaos, money transfer madness, and the banking burnout bonanza to really show, hey, look, this is how crazy it is here. Now let's go move on to see you know, what this new paradigm looks like. Because the thing is, there's nothing to compare it to. So we always go back to memory and the files in our minds to say, hey, what's this most similar to? That's how we make a reference point as humans. And there's really nothing, there's no reference point that we have with Bitcoin. So the best thing you can do is at least start out with you know, the ridiculousness of the current system and then move on from there. There's something like 17 separate steps in settling a credit card transaction when you pay for something. Like, let's say you buy, I don't know, a, a can of Coke at a gas station with a credit card. There's all these fees. There's all these steps. Walk us through that. Like, tell us the craziest things about the legacy system. It really sums it up in the introduction. If I can just go to that just for a second here. Yeah, this is where I say, hey, what's faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive and able to leap tall buildings in single bound? Well, we all know the answer is Superman. Now, what's 1,000 times faster and 1,000 times less expensive than a $1,000 credit card transaction? Well, Bitcoin, of course, our modern-day financial superhero. Now, that's coming from the perspective of a, of a merchant because, and again, this is a business guide, so that's, what that, that's why that's the perspective there. So in other words, a consumer has the experience of, well, yeah, I just go swipe my card and I'm amazed that in like one second it's approved and I can buy my stuff. But the context here is from the experience that a merchant has. I could have continued with this here, but that's actually, when you really look at it, that means that Bitcoin transaction is a million times better than a credit card transaction just by simple math, because a thousand times a thousand or a thousand squared is one million. That's really what it is. I mean, it's just, it's math. And so at the time that I wrote that, I think Bitcoin was about $300. Let's say the, the fee on that amount of Bitcoin being sent was like three cents. And then the fee for say a credit card would be whatever that is, $30 or something. It's a thousand, the fee is a thousand times more. And then as far as the time factor, just say approximately 10 minutes on a, the first confirmation. The thing is, is how long does it take for you to get your money, right? So it's like, it could be five days, six days, seven days. So if it's like six or seven days, you know, again, it's just simple math, 10 minutes into seven days, it's about a thousand times longer. So mm -hmm. it takes a thousand times longer and it costs a thousand times more. A thousand times a thousand is a million. So <laughs> that's just like, on, you know, on a, on a high level there. That's not even getting into the really ridiculousness of, of credit cards. I would say credit cards to me are just, they're chaotic even when it works. 
tell us about those specifics, because I don't think most people understand, uh, unless they're a business that accepts credit cards, they don't understand. They're just swiping a piece of plastic and it, it works from their perspective, right? But what is actually going on behind the scenes and what are some of the, the hoops that the merchant has to jump through to be able to even accept credit cards? You've got the, the merchant and then you've got the customer and then you've got the bank for each one of those. And then you've also got the payment network like your visa. And there could also be depending upon the, the card that's used and so on and so forth in the merchant, there could be other parties involved. It's like the information goes all the way back to where the transaction originates. It goes all the way back to, you know, the customer's bank and then comes all the way back again and then goes, all, you know, it's like it's information's bouncing around back and forth. So what it seems like is that you also have a situation where you kind of have the information is moving along and then you have the money is moving along as well. So it's almost like on top of all the chaos that there is, there's like double the waste of resources because you got the information is going along on one layer and then you got the banking part, the actual money is moving parallel to it at the same time. Same thing as money transfer madness. You see each one of these parties that you have that's settling the transaction in a money transfer, you've also got the bank is handling the money for each one of those parties. Every party has their own bank. That's how it gets complicated that way. That's why that's why Bitcoin is so awesome because it's like you take money, you turn it into data, and then you can program it. And it simplifies it. So the downside about all of that is that if I'm paying with my credit card, then I just have to do the same thing that I've always done, you know? And, uh, and it just works, as, as has been said. But Bitcoin doesn't have a lot of those kind of uh, user experience features built into it yet. So it seems like problems that exist in credit cards are all you know, the same or more in credit cards as you have in Bitcoin. They're just a much better job has been done abstracting them so that the person doesn't need to experience them. And unless you're involved in that back end part, well, you don't even really have to know at all about this. Whereas with Bitcoin, like if I'm a business, then I have to you know, understand how to use Bitcoin. I have to have it either installed on, on a device or, and I have to integrate it into my processes. So it seems like the, the thing that's really uh, ad advantageous for the existing system is just all of the integration and all of the abstraction and all of the insurance and all these other things that make it so that even though you know, it's a process that can take literally months to actually make sure that one of these transactions isn't going to undo itself, at the same time, that's not how users feel about it. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, one of those things. It's like, what's the compelling reason for anything that's going to be adopted, or that there's going to, you know, that there's going to be an interest in it? So, from the, I guess the maybe the irony is from the consumer. You know, it's like how much pain do they act as a, a U.S. consumer actually have? You know, they had like uh, actually it was um, John uh, Valisarius from uh, Armory. I heard him in one of his speeches at one of the conferences, and he said. Or maybe he was just, I was just talking to him. But anyway, he made a comment. He's like, actually, you know, the problem is we're actually overbanked. Whereas we talk about the unbanked. Yeah. He's like, in the I U.S., we're actually overbanked. <laughs> you know, we got, we've got multiple accounts, multiple debit cards, credit cards. <laughs> we've got so many choices. And a lot of times, I mean, there's headaches that consumers can have. But I mean, like, I'm still amazed at some of these, like the Home Depots of the world where you swipe it. And it's like, oh, my God, that was like less than a second. I was like, you know, so I do have an amazement about that. But when it comes to a merchant, to me, it's a whole, it's a whole different experience. Like if you've got to go deal with the chargeback, I heard a story actually with, it was a, um, a client who's uh, in the real estate business and they, they have a, a tenant who's a jeweler. So obviously we're talking about high dollar items. What happened was in this process, they actually really became present to how much of a poor job they did in making sure to communicate their uh, return policy and so forth, documented with the sale. Like they didn't really have it, right? Like they handed it out, but it was like, if you had to go back your, 
CYA cover your ass. So they like it wasn't there. So now fortunately they actually worked this out, but I think it was like a ten thousand dollar transaction or something like that. So somebody came in, got the ring, used American Express and so on and so forth, and then tried to go back and say that they didn't they didn't get the ring when they did and you know had the transaction reversed. So the store is about to be out ten thousand dollars. But the work that they had to go through to manage going back and trying to pull out the paperwork and, you know, piece it all together and, and so on and so forth. It's like, that's a nightmare. I mean, you can really, you can really chew up a lot of time. And also just like I was in the restaurant business as well. And you, you would have chargebacks and you're talking about, you know, what's the average ticket price, maybe, I don't know, 25 to a hundred dollars. Somebody goes to charge it back at some point. You're like, it's not even worth it because the time that you spend, you know, the amount of the sale that you're trying to prove. And I'm still blown away about how like, there's still like these visa, these paper receipts. That's a whole nother story. There's still paper receipts and you still have to keep these paper receipts like in the restaurant business. So you have a whole bunch of them and you have to keep track of them. And then if you have a chargeback, you got to go file them through a bunch of paper to try to document it. I mean, you could chew up at least an hour doing that. And that's just one of the many headaches. I think everybody who's listening to this show, whether they're a business owner or not, is going to see the, the virtues of Bitcoin and the appeal of it. But a lot of people are actually afraid to accept Bitcoin at their business because they're they're like afraid to touch it. It's like a hot potato. They don't want to incur like, what's this capital gains tax that we're going to have to pay? It's going to be a nightmare to keep track of. What if the value of Bitcoin changes between the time I accept it and whenever I get rid of it or use it to buy something else? That intimidates people. But you actually have a way of breaking it down, which I find really cool. And I think that's great because one of my favorite ways to tell people how to get Bitcoin, like a lot of people ask me, well, how do I get Bitcoin if I don't have any? One of my favorite ways is to accept Bitcoin at your business, like for goods or services. That can be a great way to get Bitcoin without having to go through an exchange or anything like that. Yet people are intimidated by it. So if you're a business and you want to start accepting Bitcoin, but you like don't really know where to start and you're worried about whether it's like even legal to do that. What would you say to that person? Well, it's actually very easy to start accepting Bitcoin. And I would say that even with the with the taxes and the other things, it's there's really there's really nothing to be intimidated about. So and you can easily do that with like coin a Coinbase is a universal platform that has invoicing and merchant tools as long I mean as well as being designed for the consumer, which is good because it's all inclusive. Like if you have it and you decide you need to invoice somebody, even though you just might be doing services on the side, like moonlighting type stuff. I mean, you have that stuff available. Or you can use a BitPay that's just designed for invoicing. And it just makes it so easy to send it out. I mean, it's really just, I mean, it's almost intuitive once you set up the account. And it doesn't really take that long to set up an account in those cases. It's got a little bit of identity verification, and you're on your way. And you've got the multiple ways you can that the same tools allow you to present to the customer. You know, you can send email invoicing and you can have QR codes available in the store for scanning and stuff like that. So it's very easy. And the thing about it, too, is probably one of the key things there. You can always set these things such that when you get the Bitcoin, you just cash it out right away. So you actually eliminate any issues with taxes at all. Now, you could be, you know, accommodating the uh, the customers by accepting it. And actually, nobody really knows whether you keep 100 percent of Bitcoin or whether you cash it out. Nobody knows that or has to know it. I think it would be great to, to keep some, if not all, but you can always do that and avoid having to have any issues. So at, on the lowest level, if you just accept Bitcoin using some of these platforms and then you cash it out to US dollars, it's almost as if you accepted US dollars for the payment in the first place or like a credit card. Right, like that. but with lower fees. So what do you think of businesses when they do that? I mean, is that sort of the baby step towards... <laughs> 
going full Bitcoin <laughs> or like because there are complaints like a lot of hardcore Bitcoiners will say like, oh, well, yeah, it's not that exciting when a business just accepts Bitcoin and then immediately cashes it out and sells it for fiat currency because they're not really participating in the Bitcoin ecosystem. What would you say to that? I agree because I say, I say the exact same thing. <laughs> the thing to understand is to accept Bitcoin, that's just the first use case of it. And as we know, there's now thousands of use cases and an infinite number of ones that we haven't even seen yet that are going to unfold in the years to come with all these different great startups and ideas that are being developed. So once you have Bitcoin, then you have the, the tool that allows you to participate in all these other great the business tools and technologies. You know, you can't go play in the sandbox unless you've got Bitcoin to play with. So you've got, you know, many of these other great platforms, you know, multi-sig technology like Bitrated, we've used that. Like to me, like that platform using, and I know there's others that are being developed now like that, but for the first time you can have a business contract without having to rely on a third party and actually lock up the, the funds and know that it's committed in the first place. Like you couldn't do that stuff before just a couple of years ago. So mm -hmm. like, that's, that's awesome. You can't play that game unless you have Bitcoin and you can't, you can't get in, basically can't get into other coins unless you have Bitcoin. You can't invest in crowd sales unless you have Bitcoin. The list goes on and on and on. It's not just about getting more customers and stuff like that. It's like your entry fee to uh, play in this whole new 21st century business technology that's going to change the world. I mean, business is going to look nothing like it does now in 10 or 20 years from now. It's going to be completely different. One thing I think also that intimidates businesses and even individuals who use Bitcoin is like the accounting. Like, how do you keep track of like, what did you exchange for? How did you get this Bitcoin? How much value did you exchange to get the Bitcoin? And then what did you spend it at? Or what is it worth right now? What is your net worth in Bitcoins? Like, there's some accounting software that helps with that. But what do you think, like, as someone who has a lot of experience with this, do you have like a favorite Bitcoin accounting software that you use for individuals or businesses? Or how do people manage that? First of all, I like to be objective. <laughs> That's, that's my role as a CPA, to bring objectivity. So as in almost any platform that I discuss in the book or in the, in the Bitcoin universe, I don't think there ever is any one necessarily go-to platform for a particular strategy. So whether it's an exchange or a wallet or what have you, there's no like best one that's the best for everything. It's more or less, what is it that you're trying to achieve and what's the best thing for that? And you're trying to achieve multiple things simultaneously, so therefore you need you know, a good sampling of the different types of platforms that are there. Essentially, it would be a good idea to be able to set up and, and make use of all the different platforms that are available. And so that same thing applies when it comes to the accounting and tax reporting platforms. They have different features. It may just be for your particular case. One might be better than another. And yes, in some cases they do have that. So you got two things that are happening. You've got being able to handle what happened in the past, past transactions. Or you may have a feature that allows you to have a dashboard, which is what I call it, which is kind of the gateway into seeing like, where am I at today? And what does the future look like to be able to make decisions from that? You can't do anything usually strategy-wise in handling the past, but you need these tools to be able to manage transactions. It would almost be, it would be impossible to be able to handle crypto and Bitcoin transactions unless you had these uh, tax accounting platforms. You just, you couldn't do it. I didn't know, for instance, that there are some platforms that you can build like a portfolio of all different Bitcoin and altcoins. You can record like, what did you buy them for? It'll show you in green, like if this is a good time to sell or something, <laughs> you know. That's what I'm saying. You're looking in the past to handle past transactions for, to, for compliance purposes and reporting. And you've got, yeah, what, what's, what's happening in the future? Yeah, so you've got like unrealized gains. 
So your dashboard will tell you, okay, I've got however many bit shares next and so, you know, Bitcoin, so on and so forth. What's my basis, which is basically what did I buy it for? And what's it worth today? So do I have an unrealized gain or potential gain or a potential loss? You know, so I bought X coin for a thousand dollars and right now it's worth ten thousand dollars. So today if I sold it, I'd have a nine thousand dollar gain. Or conversely, it could be the other way. Well, today I could have a nine thousand dollar loss if I sold it. And so uh, just because you have a potential gain or a loss, it's really relative because it could be, well, again, what are you trying to achieve? You know, based on the client, the business, or the individual, it could make sense to sell for a $9,000 loss. It could make equal sense to sell for a $9,000 gain. It just depends on the person, what you're trying to take advantage of. But at least you have that information at your fingertips. And another thing is that of all the things that are, I think, just amazing and mind-blowing to me about what's available today with Bitcoin and crypto and what I see is possible in the future. The one thing that really amazes me, though, is that when it comes to, at least right now, today, handling accounting for these transactions, as well as the tax component of it, it actually occurs to me as quite a nightmare. That's actually my interpretation of it. Some other people might argue with me, but you know, I'm down in the trenches dealing with it. So I think I have <laughs> yeah, a kind people of- give you their spreadsheets and they're like, here, you figure this out, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and I know it's going to change eventually, but right now like you know it's one of those things it's like what is your transactional landscape look like do you have one of every wallet every exchange and all these different platforms which i practically do so so if you've got transactions spread out you know in these exchanges and wallets and so forth then magnify that by the fact is you know the next question is well were you only messing around with bitcoin or do you have you know 10 or 15 other altcoins so that complicates it even further and so you've got these transactions all over the place to be able to document all that stuff and get it into the system and figure out what's going on. Because you know some platforms don't even allow you to have the ability to make a memo, which is probably the most critical thing to have in the stages where the technology is developing and becoming more robust. You at least have a memo because you can never ever document. So you could have transactions, you know, and then if you're using a platform where you can't do that, then you're trying to go back in time. It's been six months or a year since you looked at it and you've got to go figure out, well, heck, what was this transaction for? You know, you just don't, you don't have the information for it. So it can be, so you kind of have to make an inventory of where your transactions are, like think it out, make an inventory of it. And then, and then if, if you can, sometimes you can do automatic importing. If you're using a lot of these different things, you're still going to have to export CSV files, possibly massage the file, massage the data before you can re-import it and stuff like that. And if you're a business, then you even have more steps because then you get it into the tax reporting platform, then you got to export from an exchange import it into the tax reporting program and then you do what you need to do there and then you export that file from there and then you import it into an accounting program and you got to do more stuff to it so you might have to it's like a daisy chain of information massaging along the way it can be not always but it can be so is it always going to be this way or is this just a problem caused by the fact that cryptocurrency is new and like i was saying about you know credit cards like credit cards have all the same problems. It's just that it's a much more mature system. And as a result, a lot of the rough edges have, have been smoothed over. Yeah, it's definitely not going to always be this way. Libra tax, for example, uh, well, yeah, Libra, you got Libra tax, there's three big ones, Bitcoin.tax, you've also got uh, coin tracking. So Libra tax is at least planning on having some type of a QuickBooks and zero integration. I don't see where they have that yet, but they've been planning on that for a while. So that could be good. I see the potential for a 21st century accounting system that would just blow away anything that's even possible today. And so where I see is Bitcoin being amazing in all these other areas, I think that accounting is going to be transformed as well. That's one of the things I was wondering about. Like, you've obviously worked with some businesses to help them get set up using Bitcoin. 
Like, what are the biggest problems that they encounter? And what do you think are going to be the solutions that are going to come out? When I compare Bitcoin to banking, I see where Bitcoin in almost every way is superior. There's this one teeny tiny little thing, though, if you could even barely give it credit there when it comes to banking. Like when you go to a bank, you still mostly do that in person. You can do it not in person, mm-hmm. but you still show up and they say, oh, hi, how can I help you today? Oh, well, I'm here to open an account. They say, okay, well, that'd be a business account or a personal account. And then you say whichever one it is you want. And then that's how they set it up. So the thing is, is with Bitcoin, it's, there's a lot of self-serve nature to it. And oftentimes the business versus individual component or intention of it is not, it's not distinguished. It's like self-serve, but you got to be intentional about what it is you're setting it up for. So what I see is this already exists in the world, but Bitcoin, maybe when you use that magnifies it negatively, which is commingling transactions. I mean, this has been going on already for decades, you know, in this century, as far as a business owner is, you know, small business, especially medium-sized businesses, you know, you got personal credit cards and business credit cards and same thing with bank accounts and transactions get commingled. So even when you're perfect, you know, one day a card might not work and then you got to go use the other card, even when you should, you know, so you use the wrong card, but it's just because you couldn't get the one that you needed to use to work. So you still, I mean, you get that those things happen, but it's very typical for transactions to be commingled. So what happens now, it's, I see it as even more of a nightmare. So you really have to be intentional, like, okay, I'm going to create an account here. So what it could look like is for every account that you have, you need to create two accounts, which is one for personal and one for business. Or certainly you have one platform where it's personal. You know, maybe like for, if you have a counterparty wallet, well, you have one of those you want to label for personal transactions and one for business transactions and so on and so forth down the line. You know, it could even be for Coinbase. Or maybe you only need one wallet or something for personal and just make sure everything runs through there. You really have to be intentional about making sure that it doesn't happen. So in other words, That's because it. there's no human component and customer service built into Bitcoin, people can screw up if they don't know what they're doing. But there's no platform either. I've never seen where, you know, typically you don't have, oh, by the way, is this personal or is this business? Well, make sure you do this or you do that. Like, you're just not prompted for that. Now, some exchanges have where you can get a corporate account. Some will, they will distinguish it that way. Uh, Sometimes it's really obvious that they have it. Sometimes you actually have to ask, like they have a corporate account, but you don't see it until you actually like, you know, send an inquiry to them. And then they tell you, okay, this is how you do it. So. You know, it's like sometimes it's there, but it's not obvious. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by B Keychain, the official Bitcoin keychain of the LTB network. If you've read an article about Bitcoin in the last few years, and you've seen a pile of big B coins or keychains, chances are pretty good that you've already seen a B keychain. B keychains are an inch and three eighths around and brass plated for a striking and sophisticated finish. B keychains are available online at cryptoanarchy.us, btctrinkets.com, bitcoinnotbombs.org, amazon.com, or if you're in San Francisco, visit Nakamoto's at 2415 Mission Street. And of course, if you're looking to buy in bulk or resell the B Keychain, contact B Keychain at paperclipprobot.com. Okay, folks, here's part two of the tokenly online equity pitch update. 
As I alluded to in the opening, we hit our initial fundraising target of $350,000 within barely more than a day, setting at least one new record on Bank to the Future. Earlier this week, I got a commitment from a large company in the Bitcoin space to fill the rest of our fundraising round, at whatever point we're ready to end it. This company is a great strategic partner for the path we're taking, and I'm very excited to have them on board. So with that in mind, you can expect our fundraising to close a few days before the campaign officially ends at our maximum raise of $750,000. If you've been waiting for later in the campaign to support, it looks like the final day will be the 5th of May, but things could turn out a little bit faster than that. So the campaign has turned out to be a wild success, and it looks like we'll have as many resources at our disposal as we're willing to accept. With that, I'd like to announce three new positions at Tokenly that we're looking to fill immediately. Positions are 20 to 30 hours a week for now, and we're looking for team members rather than contractors. If you're interested, email adam at tokenly.com to start the conversation and schedule an interview. First, we're looking to fill a business development role. Tokenly has identified rewards-based crowdfunding platforms as the best opportunity for tokens to be useful outside of the world of cryptocurrency speculation. We're looking for someone who spent time in the trenches at an existing crowdfunding platform who could become the face of Tokenly to this market. The voice of our partner platforms, helping us make sure our solutions are really solutions, and basically be Tokenly's ambassador to crowdfunding platforms in general. If you think you're a great candidate, are passionate about what we're doing, but don't have explicit crowdfunding industry experience, contact us anyways. Being a native to that space is a definite advantage, but we're looking for the right person for the role, more so than someone who ticks all the boxes. Then, we have two development positions to fill. Tokenly is looking for a front-end developer to put a great user experience in front of our token tools. We're looking for someone who's passionate about cryptocurrency and token technology with a desire to create world-class user experiences. If you can design front-end visuals using HTML and CSS frameworks and implement them using JavaScript frameworks such as React or Angular, then we'd like to hear from you. Tokenly is also looking for a general developer to build out our suite of token tools. Building a scalable, reliable, and secure cryptocurrency infrastructure is a challenging task. But if you're familiar with systems programming, DevOps, and care about reliable, high-quality code, then we'd like to hear from you. Experience with PHP, the Laravel PHP framework, Node.js, Docker, and Amazon Web Services is a plus. So those are the roles. We're a small, growing, and ambitious team at Tokenly, and we're on a mission to bring cryptocurrency to a broad audience, beginning with the users of crowdfunding platforms. Sound interesting? Get in touch by emailing adam at tokenly.com. The magic word for today's episode is guide. That's G-U-I-D-E. Guide. You've got until April 30th to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. Can you talk about internal controls, Kirk, and the fraud triangle? Because this is something I know you've studied before, and I found it really interesting in your book when you talked about the the psychological research on why people embezzle and why people commit fraud and steal from companies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, thank you. That's one of my most passionate topics, actually, and the thing that probably excites me is maybe it might be the top thing that actually excites me about Bitcoin, the technology and cryptocurrency. I'm going to say the fraud profession, if you will, is is really a pretty young. It's only been around for about 25 years. So all these insights that we have around this are only a generation old. The fraud triangle is the triangle where you have the components of the opportunity, the rationalization, and then the incentive and the pre- or the pressure, whatever that is, if you have the pressure to do so. So it can be an individual who's an employee, or it could be C-level folks who have pressure 
you know, earnings expectations and stuff like that. That's where I think that this technology really brings the most potential. And again, because this is such a young profession, like even what's uh, younger than that is there is this data called the Report to the Nations that the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners puts out every two years. There's only been 10 years of reports out. So maybe it's only like five or six reports, something like that, because they only come out once every two years. I'm actually a certified member of that. That's where I kind of really became fascinated with this topic. And I So people are studying why fraud occurs and maybe, of course, what comes out of that is how to prevent it. The thing that's really interesting about this is that there's an environment that can be created that is like a fertile ground for fraud and embezzlement. And that is when there's an opportunity to commit fraud, there's someone has pressure or an incentive to do it, and then they can rationalize why it's a good idea and why they won't get caught. Right? Right. So really, if you're a business who's trying to prevent fraud, the only thing you can really control is the opportunity to commit it. And that's what Bitcoin could be really helpful with because you can potentially implement some internal controls that would take care of the opportunity leg of the stool. That's right. That's the way I see it, is the opportunity is the only area. So I see it as one-dimensional in the sense that the rationalization is something that happens in somebody's mind or in the minds of a group of people. It's hidden. You can't see that. The same thing with the pressure and the incentive. That's essentially hidden. You don't know that that's there. So yeah, the opportunity is where the company, having poor internal controls, are the one that creates the opportunity. So that's the only area that they can control. So just to back up for just a second, so what I was going with that before was that the research has shown that the global cost of fraud, this is just occupational fraud and abuse, it's not like all fraud and uh, you know organized crime and all that type of stuff necessarily. So the research has shown that there's it's somewhere between, it's three or four or five trillion dollars worth of fraud in a given year. So what that says is that there's a global premium on everything that you buy, every goods and services you pay in a 5% tax, if you will on fraud. I would actually assert it's higher than that. I think it could be as high as potentially 25% when you consider the deep capture. So on the lowest level, you got one particular person who this phenomenon is happening to, because it could be they have a pressure on their own life. I don't know, maybe their wife is sick or something like that, and they're having really a financial hardship. And so they, they justify and rationalize, well, I'm going to, because of this weakness here, I can exploit that, take some money with the intention of paying it back, because that's usually how it happens. And then once they see how easy it is to do it, then they do it again and again and again, and then the amounts get higher and higher. But I also believe this can happen on a collective level when we talk about deep capture is that this can happen really at the organizational level and the level of industry. Yeah, that, talk that about that. Are, what is deep capture right? for people who don't know that phrase? Well, first of all, capture is the phenomenon where the regulators that are set up to regulate certain industries ended up being controlled by those that they're supposed to regulate in the first place. Like that's the irony of it. So deep capture is where it's even more pervasive than that, that it goes into, and this is, I guess, Patrick Byrne, I suppose, may have coined that with the deep capture site and that team. The idea is that the capture is so pervasive that everyone is captured. I'm going to say it like that, like intell respected intellectuals, like the news and so on and so on down the line. Everybody is subject to the capture. And that's how pervasive the fraud is. That's why I would assert that fraud is, they say it's 5%. That's only because that's the stuff that you caught that was identified. What about the stuff that's not identified? You don't know what you don't know. So like, how big is it really? And so that's where I see these controls here. Like just on the lowest level, again, just like how you could prevent like one person having their own rationalization exercise, right? Because they got their own money problem and they're trying to solve it. Like just having a multi-sig situation like that, that you got 
funds locked up. You need, you know, two signers out of three to be able to move funds. So just having those types of internal controls, which a lot of cases don't really exist. Like you got company policies, but the tools that are deployed don't necessarily match the policy. So they can be exploited. So now what I see is this technology allows you to have where you have a company policy and then you have the tools to match the policy. And essentially the policy could be one and the same with the tool or the controls, like the technology, the same thing as we say, like in the old model, right? Information's moving along and then you got the money's kind of moving along parallel to it. And now you have where you can turn money into data and program it. So now you can make policies and the tool like one and the same. Right. And I want to talk about some examples of that, like more specific examples. But first, I just want to say, like, of course, this is not business advice to you. This isn't tax advice. We're not giving you any kind of advice. We're just talking to Kirk. Oh, yes. Thank you. Standard disclaimers apply. We we forgot the disclaimer in the opening (laughs) credits, Right. which is I'm a CPA, but I'm not your CPA. (laughs) Right. Yes. Give me an example of like if a company that could implement internal controls using something like multi-sig Bitcoin wallets or maybe some other platforms or Bitcoin tools. Give me some specific situations. Armory's work is probably one of the best examples, especially since they've geared themselves towards more enterprise, more robust uh, enterprise tools that are available. Basically, you've got tools right now with what Armory has put together that you could deploy in Fortune 500 companies where you've got multiple headquarters, if you will, or locations in different countries, multiple different C-level executives. You you might have three people in London, you might have another four people in New York. And so you can kind of tier the controls as far as how you would control funds. Now, obviously you're talking about when you get more complicated, you're getting more complicated because you got more at stake. So you're talking about millions and millions of dollars at stake in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And that's why you would have these kind of extreme examples of controls involved. You know, even on a lower level, even with a small business, you would want to have these controls in place. I'd say BitGo is a good example where you can take an off-the-shelf product and have internal controls, you know, with a micro business. What's BitGo? BitGo is essentially like a a multi-sig enterprise level tool. It's really, it's probably one of the best examples of, a, of an, what I would say is a, these internal controls that we're talking about. So you can set up uh, watching only wallets, but you can also set up multi-sig wallets in there and you can white label addresses. So you can give different permission levels to different employees and stuff like that. Like you may have an employee who would be say an accounts payable person that would pay vendors like pay bills. You can set like a per day transaction limit as well as a per trans. So you could say, for example, I'm going to set your transaction limit at like maximum $500 per vendor payment per day. And then we'll cap it at $5,000 a day. Only one vendor can you send out 500, a maximum of $500 to, and then the total for the day can only be $5,000. You can also white label particular addresses. So if you had an approved vendor list, say you've got like 25 vendors and you knew what their Bitcoin address was, and you could put those in there and then only payments could go to those approved vendors. That control would prevent that employee from sending, say, a $450 worth of Bitcoin to some other address that's maybe their own because they've been white labeled. So you've got some easy controls you can set up that way. Now, the challenge could be whether or not, like, are you, like, is that same Bitcoin address used over and over again for that business? That would be the challenge with white labeling. Like, if you're presented with a different address every time for a payment, that potentially that control would, might not work that way. And the cool thing about that, what they do also, they've got the ability to, if you ran all your Bitcoins through Bitcoin's platform, 
it's the only one that I've seen that does this, which is it'll give you an, a, a beginning balance and an ending balance, much like a bank statement. So you're able to then rec you reconcile your transactions. I, I haven't seen any other platform that does that. I mean, that's like the kind of the golden way that you reconcile anything. Beginning balance, what came in, what went out, ending balance, whether it's inventory, cash, Bitcoin, whatever it is. It's kind of like that's the simple way that you manage being able to reconcile the balance of anything. The book is available on all of the major platforms. So you got Amazon, uh, Apple iBooks, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, and so forth. Basically, all the platforms that are there. However, if you go to the companion site, thebitcoincpa.com, and so on there, there's a tab called Books. So if you go there, that's kind of like the main crossroads, if you will, where you could see links to all the places that the book will be available, which is also, there will be the audio book link will be there as well. I guess it would be the Bitcoin CPA slash books where everything's available. But if, if you just searched all those platforms, you know, you would find it there as well. And the audiobook's going to be on Audible, which I think is uh, is kind of funny and ironic because I know we've talked about this on the show. Adam, you and I have talked about how Audible could be potentially disrupted by token and Bitcoin 2.0 technologies. And uh, Kirk, and I know, enjoyed that show. <laughs> so, but for now, we're using Audible <laughs> until a token platform exists. We're using Audible. It's going to be on there. <laughs> Everything in time. Well, you know, speaking of future developments, what I'd like to talk about real quick is where, where all this is going. There are problems now, but it seems like the potential for automation to make this so that, like, at the end of the day, you don't even have to do your taxes. They just kind of have been done over the course of the year is really possible because all of this stuff is automatable. Someone needs to automate it for it to work, but, but it is automatable. So is that what you see, too? I'd, I'd like to know kind of, you know, in five years where you think all of this, you know, complication is going to wind up. Yes, I think absolutely it is. Whether it's five years or not, I see it as like uh, you would be able to have spontaneous financial statements. You say you would basically just at any given time, you would just be able to use some type of an interface and you would just all of a sudden it would be like, you know, voila, it would just be there in real time. That's kind of the best way I can describe. It. Yeah, literally one day it will be like, you know, it will just pull in all the necessary information. It will, you know, potentially handling the tax side of things and all the other components for reporting, whether it's information from an internal management perspective or just like outside, you know, external compliance. Like any and all of that stuff will be possible. One challenge is you've got oftentimes like what happened in the past and how do you capture that? Because if you had like today, let's just say we had this magical flat platform just appears out of nowhere that, nowhere that we could use to do these things that we're talking about. Like it can handle everything going forward. But the question is, if you got stuff that you need to handle in the past, how could you get that into this? It strikes me that, you know, so long as we're talking about blockchain-based transactions, then, you know, you need to have pricing information, right? But you have all of the exact timestamps at which each transaction happened. You lack a memo, you lack a couple of other things. But again, right. uh, that's, so, so I guess that's the problem then, is there's just not enough meta information around it to make it automated unless you add a second layer. So Kirk, on your website, I noticed that you have some courses there that people, like you have a free Bitcoin tax course. I think people, some people might be really interested in that. Yes, this ties back to where I was talking about having a companion site for the book. So I looked at like, what are the most relevant practical things that businesses and actually individuals in this case might need help with? And, you know, I guess one of the most obvious ones is taxes. So I've developed a free Bitcoin tax course part. There's part one that's on the site right now. Part two is going to be forthcoming shortly. And then eventually it will be 
you know, there'll be a self-serve component to it that'll be like, you know, $97 or something like that. But it could be that, say, the free course parts one and two, or even if there's other free parts, you know, the idea is that somebody may listen to that and they may get all they need to know to go on their way and successfully complete their own taxes. Or they say, hey, you know what, I need some more. Let me do the self-serve course and things like that. So the idea here is that it's a value proposition. $97 is what might be less than one hour of hiring a professional. And then in some cases, people might get into it and say, well, you know what? I don't want to have to deal with this. Give me a done for you service or something like that. But the idea is to really provide something that people can start consuming information right away. And that might take care of it for them. Or if they need more, then they can go to the next step. We close today's show with a selected reading from the audiobook version of the Ultimate Bitcoin Business Guide on the topic of credit card chaos. Visit the show notes or head to audible.com to find the full version available now. Credit Card Chaos From Checks to Credit Cards Checks were used in the United States even before 1853, when the New York Clearinghouse Association was established to process the huge volume of check transactions. Checks are still alive and well today over 150 years later. Merchants started to issue merchant charge cards in the 1950s, extending credit to customers for purchases only at their respective stores. Some of these still exist today, such as the Sunoco card or the Macy's card. Smaller banks in California then tried to create a unified credit card that was available to use at any participating retailer, but the banks could not get enough momentum for widespread acceptance. Disruptive Drop Innovators disrupted the system by creating a plastic card that could be used to buy anything from any store that accepted it. In 1958, Bank of America launched Bank AmeriCard, the brainchild of Joseph P. Williams of BNA's in-house think tank. They carefully studied the failures and successes of merchant cards like Sears in rolling out their successful campaign. They reached the tipping point through a massive credit card drop in California, where hundreds of thousands and then millions of live working credit cards were distributed to customers. Unsolicited credit cards just showed up in mailboxes with ready-to-use credit limits. This is not to be confused with the credit card offers that show up today with a fake plastic card gimmick requiring an application for approval. The credit card drop got traction when everyone took advantage of what seemed like free cash. Fast adoption was not without problems, like a default rate that was four to five times higher than projected, in addition to massive amounts of credit card fraud, both of which were not anticipated. Today's Twins The original Bank AmeriCard has morphed into the Visa cards we know today, dominating the credit and debit card market. MasterCard Interbank Card was created when a consortium of banks got together to create a credit card competitor to the Visa card. Visa and MasterCard have a notorious track record for antitrust and class-action lawsuits from consumers, as well as competitors like American Express and Discover. They've also set records for the highest dollar class-action settlements in history. Quote, Visa and MasterCard are the ringleaders, organizers, and enforcers of a conspiracy among U.S. banks to fix the price of ATM access fees in order to keep the competition at bay, said Jonathan Rubin of Rubin PLLC, one of the plaintiff's lawyers in the class action suit. The Life of a Credit Card Purchase Jill goes to the shop online or in person using a credit card for payment. She swipes her credit card or clicks the Submit button, which transmits the data via a point-of-sale or POS terminal or payment gateway, which then sends the transaction to the, quote, issuing bank for Jill's credit card. 
The issuing bank clears the payment with the merchant's, quote, acquiring bank, while the credit card association, for example, Visa, authorizes the sale over the payment network. Basically, the banks and the payment network confirm there's money in Jill's account, says the transaction is good, and makes the payment on Jill's behalf. All of this happens in a few seconds, and Jill happily walks away with her new product or service. Convoluted Fees The merchant who sold to Jill currently pays 3 to 4% of sales in credit card processing fees, or 3 to $4,000 for every $100,000 in sales, which is mainly comprised of an interchange fee or swipe fee. Jill's issuing bank happily collects the interchange fee, and the merchant's acquiring bank gets a smaller processing fee, both of which are part of the collected, quote, MDR, or merchant discount rate. Laundry list of fees and factors. There's a laundry list of different types of fees, rules, and rates, which is blended together to make up this 3 to 4% cost. The system is so convoluted and difficult to understand that business owners feel frustrated and overwhelmed by it all. Here are some of the factors that affect the cost of accepting credit cards. Is the card present or not present? Charges with cards not present cost more. Is it a debit card or a credit card? Credit cards cost more. The size and type of business you're in? If you're in an industry with more chargebacks, the cost is higher. This is an insult to injury cost. Average ticket size or sale amount? Smaller average sales usually cost more. Card brand, country of issue, regions and jurisdictions, and business card versus personal card are other factors affecting the cost. And here are some example costs associated with accepting credit cards. Monthly minimum fee averaging $25 per month regardless of a credit card sale. Monthly statement fee averaging $10 per month, also paid regardless of a sale. Interchange or swipe fees ranging approximately 1 to 4%, plus a fixed transaction fee averaging $0.10 to $0.30. Gateway monthly payments ranging from $5 to $15 per month for online or e-commerce businesses. POS credit card terminal lease or purchase. For example, a lease may be $40 per month for 36 to 48 months, or a purchase may be $495. Rolls of credit card terminal receipt paper averaging $30 per roll. PayPal and similar services have simplified some of these issues by offering a flat 2.9% plus $0.30 per transaction. Hoops, fees, and headaches. Cross-border credit card sales give merchants the privilege of paying an ISA, or International Service Assessment, on top of interchange fees. Every time merchants jump through hoops, they get to pay another fee. Depending on the product or industry, credit cards may also hold a hefty cash reserve to cover fraud and chargebacks. Essentially, hair-trigger fraud controls designed to detect and prevent fraudulent transactions are blocking otherwise legitimate transactions, which is creating more hidden costs in lost sales, loss of customer goodwill, and all-around frustration. Online merchants are the benefactors of an additional card-not-present fee, up to 1% more than when a card is physically present at a retailer. The 1% premium can quickly turn into a 100% nightmare because online merchants are responsible for all fraud-related chargebacks. Bitnet.io CEO and payments industry veteran John McDonald describes the pain like this. Quote, 
So when we add up the total cost of acceptance, it's not the 2 to 4%, it's really 8 to 10 to 12% depending on the industry. So if you're a retailer accepting credit cards, that's really what you're paying. The full loaded cost of accepting credit cards online is in the neighborhood of 10%, which is an incredibly corrosive cost to the margins in some thin margin businesses. What does MasterCard say about interchange fees? MasterCard states, quote, If interchange rates are set too high, such that they lead to disproportionately high MDRs, merchants' desire and demand for MasterCard acceptance will drop. If interchange rates are set too low, card issuers' willingness to issue and promote MasterCard cards will drop, as will consumer demand for such cards. In response to these competitive forces, we strive to maximize the value of the MasterCard system by setting default interchange rates at levels that balance the benefits and costs to both cardholders and merchants. On this topic, Steve Beauregard, founder of GoCoin.com, said, quote, Credit card companies have a monopoly that's lasted far too long. The following diagram, shown in Figure 2 in the Supplemental Materials, depicts the true nature of credit card chaos. Don't strain too hard trying to understand the flow or you might get a headache. The visual nature provides a glimpse into the complicated nature of a credit card purchase. Credit card chaos ensues in the following 14 steps. 1. Consumer presents card for purchase to merchant. 2. Merchant sends authorization for amount to Payment Gateway. 3. Payment Gateway routes the transaction to the correct brand network. 4. Brand network routes authorization to consumers issuing bank. 5. Issuing bank replies with an authorization response, approved or declined, to the brand network. 6. Brand network directs response to Payment Gateway. 7. Payment Gateway submits response to merchant. 8. Merchant communicates response to consumer at browser. 9. Merchant sends settlement message to Gateway at the end of the day in batch for final settlement amount. 10. Gateway sends settlement file to brand network. 11. Brand network sends settlement to issuing bank. 12. Issuing bank sends settlement amount to brand network. 13. Issuing bank debits consumer credit card account for the amount. And 14. Merchant Acquiring Bank receives funds and credits merchant account. Now just take a deep breath. I promise it'll be okay. Seconds to Sell and Days to Collect The Merchant's Bank receives the payment from Jill's Bank, but the money doesn't clear and become usable to the merchant for several days, even though the verification of available funds allowed the merchandise to be sold within a few seconds. For example, if a credit card swipe takes one to three seconds to verify and two to five days for merchants to receive their money, then it takes 57,600 to 432,000 times longer to receive the money than it does to make the sale. Let's call this the usable money to approval ratio, and don't forget banking holidays when you make the calculation. It's outrageous and unacceptable to wait that long for money. Yet everyone's become comfortably numb to the status quo of credit card chaos. Relative to countries like Argentina, it's a welcome choice compared to a 30-day wait for credit card payouts, coupled with soaring inflation, a true example of insult to injury. I'd be scared to calculate the usable money-to-approval ratio on that one. A merchant's bonus, the hidden costs. 
If the fees and waiting time weren't enough, merchants get the added reward of headaches for their patients. Merchants may have to go through an underwriting process to accept credit cards depending on the sales of the merchant and the types of customers, just like being underwritten for a loan. For example, one application for a service provider asks for detailed personal information, two years of income statements, and corresponding balance sheets. The underwriting process may result in multiple inquiries on your personal credit report with a potentially negative impact. Cross-border or international transactions with different currencies are so complex, they come with a 600-page manual. Who has the time to understand that in any size company? Businesses may be required to have a reserve or post a bank guarantee to offset chargebacks. In addition to waiting five days for your money, the bank graciously keeps some of your money so you can't use it. Every business that accepts credit cards must be Payment Card Industry, or PCI, Security Standard compliant. Fortunately, small merchants can sign a self-assessment questionnaire, or SAQ, while Tier 1 merchants with more than $6 million in credit card transactions have a huge PCI audit expense to stay in compliance. Someone in the business has to stop what they're doing and deal with chargebacks, which could take at least an hour to research, assemble documentation, and submit to the acquiring bank or merchant services provider. The amount of time employees or owners spend dealing with chargebacks is a significant hidden cost. Credit Card Chaos Takeaway This section was not designed to be a complete analysis of credit card processing, nor for anyone to remember all the moving parts. It's an exercise in asking, why does it take so long to get paid? Why is it so complicated and difficult to understand? Why are there so many hidden costs? Why is the simple act of getting paid by customers not so simple? This is a wheel-spinning exercise that takes away from business owners being able to focus on what's going to make their business grow. For the last 60 years, we have been using the same payment system for goods and services. While MasterCard and Visa and other credit and debit cards are convenient for consumers, they carry a unique set of frustrations and are a perpetual thorn in the side of merchants because of all the fees and headaches. This stale system is simply setting the stage for the next disruptive drop, a necessary precursor to transformation of the tired old credit card model. The cost of fraud and the cost of maintaining and securing personal information, the PCI compliance mentioned earlier, accounts for the substantial cost of maintaining the current system. The credit card hacking of tens of millions of Target customer accounts in 2013 and Home Depot accounts in 2014, among others, begs the question, is it possible to keep large amounts of private data secure? The best and brightest companies with unlimited resources can't keep your information secure, and their vulnerabilities are juicy pickings for hackers. Expending resources to safeguard vast amounts of duplicated personal data is an exercise in futility. Consumers have to endure long and painful fraud monitoring on their credit profiles as a result of hacking, while merchants' reputations are damaged and millions more are spent to perpetuate the same cycle in a race to outsmart the hackers. We'll soon see how Bitcoin can transform the convoluted nature of credit card chaos. Thanks for listening to episode 290 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Kirk, Stephanie, and Adam. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and featured music by Jared Brubens and MindToMatter.org. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.